welcome to episode 32 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. We are recording again in Brittany's movie attic in Metairie, <laughs> Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Brittany, yes. it's been a month since we talked on the microphone. Yes. What have you been watching? I have been just like engulfed in The Handmaid's Tale. So oh, yeah. Holy shit. So I really haven't watched like too many movies lately, but I have watched Something's Gotta Give. It's a um, 2003 comedy, romantic comedy, starring Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton. It's kind of like one of those like senior citizen rom-coms I that I love. I can picture the cover, like white background, mm-hmm. with, like one of them just kind of smiling and like sunshine. In opposite ways. Yeah, yeah. Like Jack Nicholson's <laughs> all like, nice. And Diane Keaton's just kind of like, hmm. like she has like a little glow about her. Yeah, I do love the cover. But I don't know. I really, really liked it. It's just one of those, I call them like background movies where it's always entertaining and you can just have it playing in the background, (laughs) like while you're doing housework and stuff like that. And you can just like sit down when you want to break and like jump in and be like, oh, this is really cool. You know, like it's just, it's entertaining all the way around. That's like a lot of rom-coms are kind of like watchable like that. That's true. And I guess Jack Jack Nicholson kind of did that after what, As Good As It Gets? He like knocked out a few of those like in a row. On the cover of As Good As It Gets, he's doing the same smile. But with a dog. Oh yeah, that's like, right. Diane Keaton's like replaced the dog. <laughs> I wonder how many covers of movies. I mean, he smiles a lot. Yeah. Even in one floor of the cuckoo's nest, in that cover, he's like grinning. Well, yeah. Sometimes it's a creepy smile. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. What covers movie? Oh, about Schmidt. He is not smiling no. on the cover about Schmidt. No. He looks. It's a very. Depressing <laughs> There's not a lot movie. about the smile about in that movie. No. Just when he gets to piss standing up, I guess. That was a big part of the movie where he had to like pee sitting down in the toilet. But back to something's gotta give. The movie is basically about this guy who's, I guess in his 60s, it's Jack Nicholson, and he loves dating like younger women. So he's dating um, Amanda Pete, and her name's like Marin in the movie. And she's probably, like, supposed to be, like, in her 30s, so they're already kind of, like, the not-so-average couple. And they go to the Hamptons to visit, like, her mom, because her mom lives out in the Hamptons. They're staying there, I guess, for, like, a little vacation. And her mom's Diane Keaton, and she's, like, this playwright, very sophisticated, really cool woman. And she's disgusted by him the minute (laughs) she, like, realizes, like, oh, you're dating my daughter. And he's just kind of, like, this gross asshole who, like, thinks he's the shit and, like, women worship him, that kind of thing. But he eventually has a heart attack and goes to the hospital. And the doctor, Keanu Reeves, has a thing for Diane Keaton's character. Like, they kind of have a connection after the heart attack incident. So she starts going on dates with him. (laughs) So it's kind of like, I've got the younger guy, you've got the younger girl. And then while they're in those like relationships they're falling in love with each other oh no (laughs) at the same time which is so weird to me because i wouldn't even know what that would feel like to basically date this like older guy and then like he has a thing for my mom (laughs) while we're all in the same house (laughs) it's super insane did they play it for it being like kind of gross and weird or is it like no it's lighthearted and funny and then like at one point whenever marin who is amanda pete she like tells her mom diane keaton's character's name is erica so she tells her mother erica you should date harry and harry's jack nicholson's character she's like i haven't slept with him or anything so it's just oh it just leaves a real bad taste in your mouth yeah. you keep watching and you're like oh this is kind of quirky <laughs> anyway so like they kind of fall in love and yeah it's just 
the same crap you'd expect. Then they start, like, <laughs> sleeping with each other, and then she's, like, kind of checking his blood pressure while they're having sex. Wait, so the movie doesn't end with the two old people getting together? That's, like, like way before the ending of the movie? That's on, like, the first or second act? It's, like, in the middle of the movie. Oh, wow. Because they kind of start falling for each other, and then they kind of fall apart, mm-hmm. and then kind of get back together uh, at the okay. end. Does Keanu Reeves ever get with Amanda Peet? You'll have to find out for yourself. Oh, no. I'm not giving away any of those secrets. It's weird enough to, like, (laughs) sleep with your daughter's boyfriend, but then to, like, swap sexual partners is very strange. Oh, God. I mean, maybe it is normal. (laughs) And maybe I'm being judgmental. I'm just, I don't know if I could do something like that. But what was interesting is, I know that you have been talking lately about female directors, Mm -hmm. and we kind of mentioned it in our last movie of the month oh god mikey and nike it's not mikey uh, and nike mikey and nikki yeah i cannot get that yeah. at all mickey well, and nikki mikey and nike <laughs> mickey, mikey and nikki <laughs> one of those yeah elaine may right so we're talking about how there's not you know an abundance i guess of female directors mm-hmm. well this film was directed by nancy myers who's oh, a okay. female director yeah and she did The Intern, It's Complicated, and The Holiday, which are, like, the same kind of rom-com category, the same vibe going on. Like, it's not, like, stupid romantic comedy stuff right. that's, like, super disgusting. It's really, it's kind of sweet, though, right? Right. Yeah. It's almost like a sophisticated romantic comedy that you can enjoy with your mother, your aunt, grandmother, you know, you I like don't know. Drink wine, you drink wine <laughs> drink out of the glass uh, right. instead of out of the box. <laughs> not, yeah, not in the Mardi Gras cup, not out of the box. It's like you got the wine glass, yeah. you have a charcuterie board, right. some good, the good cheese. I heard the intern was very sweet and like a lot smarter than it looks like in the trailers, but I haven't seen it's it. It's really, oh, I loved it. I liked it a lot because it follows the same sort of rom-com pattern, but it's about like straight up friendship. Mm. It's not about like a romantic relationship. Yeah. And I really like that because there's more to life than that shit. So it's kind of cool that they focus on that. Well, speaking of um, female directors, Patty Jenkins, who directed that movie Monster that you like. I was Charlize Theron. Oh, Eileen Wuornos, my favorite serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What's up? <laughs> uh, she directed the new Wonder Woman movie. Cool. Yeah. So I saw that in the theater. I wasn't as high on it as a lot of people are. Like, I think the movie begins and ends like very much like usual superhero, like going through the motions mm-hmm. kind of tedium. It starts with like an origin story and then it ends with like this big battle with like all these just powers being thrown around and like saving the world through these two people duking it out in like an airplane hangar or something. Oh um, my gosh. So it's pretty like run of the mill in those two bookends, but in the middle, uh, watching Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman just kicking ass is so much fun. I really enjoyed it a lot of the action sequences of just Diana jumping through buildings and, like, murdering a bunch of, like, German soldiers. Yeah. Cool. And there's some, like, kind of fish-out-of-water comedy with her and uh, Chris Pine that's pretty funny, where she's, like, walking through um, turn-of-the-century England with, like, a sword. People are like, put that away! You can't, like, just walk around with a sword, like, (laughs) (laughs) half-dressed down the middle of the street. It's a a fun movie. I'm really glad it's doing really well, so there will be more, like, hopefully female-centric, like, superhero stuff to sort of match how, like, macho stuff's been. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is definitely the best of the, like, DC movies that have come out in this most recent cycle. But yeah, I thought you might be interested to hear that just because Patty Jenkins also directed Monster, that you might want to see this I love Monster. Yeah. No, I w- I've been wanting to see it. So, like, like you said, like, I really hope that it does kind of, like boost this idea of like hey let's make some awesome like female superhero movies because i love teen titans 
Oh, and yeah. I love Starfire and Raven a bunch, so please make a movie about that. Yeah. I would love that. There's, like, heroes even in the Marvel universe that have been around since, like, the first Avengers that don't have their own movie yet, you know? It's a um, buttload. Yeah. Of, like, there's a lot of untapped so potential. Much, yeah. Totally. But, you know, like, you watch, probably seen, like, five superhero movies since January, so I'm getting kind of, like, tired. But most of them have been pretty good, but mm-hmm. it's just a kind of exhausting seeing the same, like, story structure work right. itself out over and over again. More recently, I've been on kind of a just weird ambient horror kick. Nice. Uh, I've been watching a lot of like slow, creepy movies, um, and two really good ones from this year came up. Um, one is called The Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's starring Kiernan Shurka from Mad Men and Emma Roberts from Nerve, which I loved last year, oh. and okay. Lucy Boynton, who was in Sing Street. And two of the girls are at this Catholic boarding school on winter break, um, and their parents don't come pick them up. So all the girls, all the other girls leave the school and they're kind of stuck there with like a couple nuns mm-hmm. and it's like snowing outside since it's winter break. It's, uh, the movie was originally titled February when it was on the festival circuit. This other girl comes from a bus station where she may have run away from a mental hospital. Like you get sort of these like dreamlike flashbacks to a hospital. You're not really sure what's going on. And as she hitchhikes closer and closer to the school, creepier things happen at the school and all three of their situations sort of blow up in this, like, there's, like, these, like, occultist rituals and, like, really nasty, violent bursts of just, like, murder and, like, just weird flashback imagery that you can't really connect when any of it means. Just, like, priests and, like I said earlier, like, hospital stuff. And, like, there's this, like, boiler room in the uh... school where they keep going in there and there's, like, some, like, weird dark secret lurking in the shadows. And it's just this very tense, quiet horror film that you start to feel like it's going to be like a David Lynch kind of thing where there's no answer to the puzzle. But in the last like 20 minutes, it becomes very clear what's going on and you suddenly get everything. And it's, it's just well constructed that way. I highly recommend watching it late at night with like either headphones or like a really good like sound system. Cause a lot of the tension is just this like oppressive score coming in. And it was directed by Anthony Perkins, son, Oz Perkins, who's made a couple movies now. So, I don't know. I think you should watch that sometime. I'm um, highly interested in watching that yeah. because I've been, along with, like, TV shows I've been watching lately, like Handmaid's Tale, um, it's called, like, The Keepers. It's a Netflix Oh, I heard series. that's fucked up. It's, like, the basically they're this, like, unsolved murder of a nun from, yeah. like, the, like, late 60s. So, just kind of, like, this whole murder in the church vibe. Mm-hmm. Oh, how creepy. So, this kind of sounds... Yeah, there's a lot like, of Catholic imagery in, in this, for sure. <laughs> sweet the keeper sounds a little too brutal for me i don't know because it's like a real life gruesome event there's so many like i've been on like a true crime kick intensely Mm -hmm. lately and there's a lot of weird like priest murders or like nun murders that are like out there (laughs) yeah so we'll we'll definitely watch that movie (laughs) the other one i want to recommend i just saw in the theater last night so it's available to watch at the show Ooh, and i have a gift card (laughs) it's called it comes at night oh i saw the uh the commercial Uh, yeah this guy this guy, it's a second film. He directed Cresha last year. His name's Trey Edward Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic movie about, like, a virus outbreak. And they all live with that man? They live in a house where they're, like, boarded up trying to uh-huh. keep outsiders from coming in. And there's a lot of mystery about, like, what's going on and, like, how they're going to survive this, like, virus. Ooh. You don't get a lot of detail about, like, narrative stuff. It's kind of like what I was saying about Black Coat's Daughter, where it's yeah. all, like... Very tense, like, sound design heavy. A lot of nightmare imagery in this one as well. Sweet. But this one is specifically about grief for loss and, like, fear and paranoia. Oh, God. And what comes at night from the title of the film is this, like, oppressive sense of, like, 
fear about what's going to happen. There's no foreseeable mm-hmm. future where everything's going to be okay. Shit. So you keep telling yourself everything's going to be okay, but when you're alone at night uh, and you start to dream <laughs> and you're like alone in a house, you know, like when your fears like and your anxieties about the day sort of like paramount. I'm about to throw up. Yeah. Yeah. Just like hearing about it. So I probably shouldn't get like my pickle and icy no. whenever I see this in theaters. It's very tense and very oh, quiet. Oh, Jesus. A lot of people have been mad at it. Kind of like The Witch last year. Like a lot of horror audiences went in inspecting something kind of sort of straightforward, like maybe with a monster or like a zombie or something. But that doesn't make it, it makes it creepier when it's like so mysterious that you can't put your finger on it, where it leaves your mind to sort of figure out what exactly is happening, what's going to happen. Like, I hate being told this is what's happening and this is what's going to happen and this is why. Now, this is more about like just making you feel tense. Right, like uh, a freaking witch. Like I still think about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like while I'm, you know, about to go to bed. Like, all right, I'm super tired, and then I'm just like, oh god. Like you know, I think of what was that fucking thing in the woods. <laughs> you know. Yeah, this is definitely Jesus. in that same vein. Like, I mean, I would recommend both of these movies, The Black Coat's Daughter and It Comes at Night, for that same like kind of yes. witchy, like just really tense atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And especially It Comes at Night, I think captures what it feels like to be up late at night, anxious about things and not being oh. able to fix anything. Yeah, and that just sort of like strangling you yeah every it's really night. good yeah. <laughs> sweet well today we're gonna lighten up a little bit from what i was just talking about i'm in a dark place right oh now. shit well we're gonna need the relief we're gonna be talking about a lot of musical comedies comedies about music so some stuff from the 80s and 90s some yes. like nostalgia pieces and also Hot one from stuff. just a few years ago and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now trius had had many adventures traveling through space examining all sorts of different planets and their inhabitants. But what he was about to experience on this planet would change his life forever. But before he released his magic potion, something stopped him. For the first time in his whole life, he heard music. unlike anything he'd ever experienced. He couldn't believe it. No other planet he'd ever visited in the whole universe thought to arrange a collection of sounds in such a way. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute conversation. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. I made Brittany watch a comedy from 2013 titled The History of Future Folk. There were a few bands in the, like, early 2000s that came up like flight of the concords and tenacious d yeah where they do like this like novelty folk music and there's like kind of a in universe like mythology to them flight of the concords is that tv show about them coming from new zealand to america and like making it big right and then tenacious d has the pick of destiny movie uh where they have to like so much they have to like defeat satan by playing like the Mm -hmm. greatest song ever written (laughs) um History of Future Folk is about a band from that same kind of era. They started in 2002 in New York, and they're called the Future Folk. And they have their own mythology. <laughs> and this movie did not come out until 10 years after they were a band. And they never made it big the same way that Fly the Concords and uh, Tenacious D did. Um, so this movie is like very cheaply made. It really only appeared on Netflix. Like I never even saw like a theatrical release for it. Like recently on Netflix, too. Like... Yeah, in the last couple of years. Yeah. Their in-universe mythology is that one general from the planet Hondo uh, leaves his planet to find a new place for Hondonians to live because their planet is going to be destroyed by a giant meteor. 
he crash lands on Earth and fully intends to fulfill his mission of killing everyone here so that Hondonians can move to the Earth and take over our planet. Uh, And just about when he's going to set off the virus in a department store, he hears music for the first time. It's this really cheesy over the uh, intercom, like... (laughs) It's like a Costco. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's in like a Costco and hears like elevator music over the intercom. And it blows his mind because no planet in all of the universe has thought to make music before. Uh, So he decides to live here. Um, He lies to a woman and tells her that he's like a professor at NASA and has a child with her. And at night, he God. dresses in his general costume from the Planet Hondo and basically just tells his life story on stage while singing songs about Hondo. And everyone in the audience sort of like takes it ironically. They're like laughing at him and thinking that he's joking around. But he's like, no, really, I came here to kill you all. But music is too good. <laughs> at the same time, he is working at NASA. He's just not a professor. He's like a landscaper. Mm-hmm. And he's working with their equipment, trying to contact Hondo to play the music so that they will know that Earth is worth saving. He's also working on a way to destroy a meteor using NASA's equipment, and the events of the film are kicked into gear when an assassin is sent to kill Petraeus for abandoning his post, and the assassin is really bad at his job, and basically Petraeus kidnaps him and forces him to listen to music for the first time, and they form a band, which is the future folk. Brittany, what did you think of this movie? Did not know anything going into it. I've never heard of it. And the whole time, like, in the beginning, I'm thinking his daughter is just going to, like, have this imaginary situation from the story that her dad's, like, telling her. But her dad's telling her the truth. And she's not imagining it. I really, really liked it a lot. It was such, like, a quiet movie, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's just there's... Like, there's so much going on where it's, like, the Earth is about to, like, get destroyed by the Hondonians, and it's just a lot of dark crap going on where it's, like, humankind's about to, like, just freaking die out, and we're gonna be taken over, but it's so light. Like, yeah. the whole feeling is just, like, huh, huh. The premise is very much over the top, but the execution is, like, kind of like a quiet, So like, simple, but yeah. in a good way where it's just really nice, pleasant. Some of that might have been budgetary, like... It seemed like they filmed this very cheaply. Right. Uh, the scene where the assassin is trying to kill uh, Trius for the first time. They're outside <laughs> and filming on, I guess, like handheld DV cameras. And it seems like some of the reactions of people who are watching them film are like genuine. Like it seems like candid. Like they just kind of like went out and stole shots without permits. Probably. Uh, so I don't know. It's kind of got an endearing, like cheaply made aesthetic to that. For some reason, I wanted you to watch this because it kind of reminded me of, like, Tim and Eric. Like, it's got kind of an awkward, like, handmade mm-hmm. quality to it. Like That makes it real super funny. Yeah. Like, their costumes are kind of dinky. They look like 50s, like, sci-fi robots. <laughs> it's a lot like um, Casey and his brother. If I could travel in time. Super influenced by that in some way. Yeah. Did really like that. But um, I loved, like, how... General Trius has this, like, general personality where he's very, like, serious, doesn't smile pretty much ever, doesn't really show a lot of emotion, whereas when Kevin comes over to, like, fuck Trius up, he's just this, like, super goofy, funny, like, little chubby guy that is just super freaking happy. If Kevin the Assassin was a member of um, Tenacious D, he's definitely the Kyle Gass. He just makes weird faces mm-hmm. and like has a strange sort of like background character where he provides a lot of the punchlines, but he doesn't right. like 
push the story forward the same way that General right. Trius has to. General Trius is more like Jack Black like. <laughs> well, yeah, he doesn't have Jack Black's energy or anything, but like His all the seriousness. Ma- yeah, like, you're following me. I'm the leader. Yeah, all the plot uh, is basically in General Trius's hands, and Kevin's just kind of there to like <laughs> along for the ride to like do the Whoa! yeah. <laughs> weird like super high bitch so that's my favorite scene in the movie is when (laughs) trius first kidnaps kevin and ties him up in his basement and forces him to listen to him play like or hundreds of years of musical development on the banjo like he plays like a medley of like beethoven to modern rock Uh and kevin's face initially when he's tied up he thinks that he's going to be tortured he's like put that torture device away when he sees the banjo and the delight on his face that comes out of that Mm -hmm. horror and then he, like, bursts into song, like that high, high note you were just singing. Right. Uh, just like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. It's he loves music so much. Such a <laughs> great, so awesome. like, facial performance in that scene. Like, <laughs> right. just watching him experience music for the first time. Uh, I will say my second biggest laugh after that torture scene is the club where they play is, like, this, like, little dive bar. Mm-hmm. And Dee Snyder owns it. Oh! Oh! So, so Dee Snyder comes in and... At a certain point, Trius's wife, like, finds out that he's from another planet and he's been, like, lying to her. So he, like, gets kicked out of the house and he has nowhere to stay. Uh, and Dee Snyder offers them a place to stay in the club. And he's like, you can stay in the back room, but it smells like piss back there. It smells like piss because I piss back there sometimes. Right. He's so... Like, Dee Snyder is that guy that, like, I just feel like I should really be like, God, this guy is such a douche. But he isn't. He's, like, in everything he does, like, movie-wise, or when he makes, like, special appearances and, you know, things you wouldn't expect him to be in, he's really funny. Pretty much, like, the only celebrity, like, recognizable personality in the film, right? I don't think there's yeah. anybody else that's, like, a, an actor. So I'm thinking that Dee Snyder did this because he's seen them perform before and knows and he's them. A fan. Or maybe he just that. is that cheap to get. Because, I don't know, he'll like pop up in like Hellraiser sequels and like right. weird stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but what I found really interesting was um, General Trius, who I cannot think of his Earth name at the moment. Mm-hmm. But the thing with him and his wife, where I couldn't help but think like, how and why would you ever marry and have a child with someone where you had no idea about their like upbringing even though like she kind of had this like you know story about i think like oh like his parents are dead but he doesn't like to talk about it but it just kind of like freaked me out a little bit where i'm like that's so dangerous Mm -hmm. because i mean thank god he was just general trius you know a general from like another planet that was going to come and destroy the earth Thank God that was the story, and he wasn't, like, a serial killer or something like that where he would put her life in danger. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like, the the love, or the love that's supposed to be there between him and his wife doesn't really come out all that much, because she's kind of just, like, eh, like he is. Right. Like, she's not very emotional. I don't know if it's her acting style or if she was supposed to be that way, but it's, like, he's just kind of, like, hi, I'm General Trist, and she's, like, we have a kid together, um, what are you trying to do? I'm not feeling the passion. <laughs> I don't know. But they maybe. seem like academic types, maybe. Because he's like a, yeah. he's supposed to be a professor. And he is like smart enough to be a professor. Right. But yeah, I think they just have like that dry, like East Coast academic per- personality. Maybe that's it. I do like the um, dynamic where he has to lie to his wife and there's probably like some tension there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he his outlet is to go sing these like really sincere songs about like farming space worms on hondo i love the space worm song i was going to say that was probably my favorite song from the whole movie but yeah if it's funny like that he has to like go to this dive bar to tell the truth and dress like his true self in his like military uniform (laughs) which 
looks like kind of Devo-ish, right? Oh, yeah. It looks, it's very like, Devo-inspired. It's got, like, the same, like, the helmet is the sort of, like, dome. <laughs> this ups red, shiny, mm-hmm. like, lampshade. But he calls it a bucket <laughs> in the movie. He's like, we don't, we don't have buckets on Planet Hondo, so I didn't know how silly this would look when we got here. But I think, I think there's something really interesting about that, like, sincerity, mm-hmm. where they have this really ridiculous mythology, but telling the truth and, like, being sincere about it and, like, being, like, kind of like, I'm going to level with you. I'm here to do this. Uh, I think it really helps the movie, like, stand out and not be, like, silly. It's a funny movie and it's very lighthearted, but it's not, like, a um, laugh-a-minute uh, anti-comedy. Like, I-, I compared it to Tim and Eric earlier, but I feel like Tim and Eric is a lot more insincere. Like, there's yes. no, like, there's no, like, sincere beats in that. And this is, like, a more, like, heartfelt version of that. I'm like, shit, Hondo, take over Earth. I mean, <laughs> keep some of the good people because you guys seem like way better than humans. You yeah. know, just the whole, like you were saying, like he's so like truthful. I mean, except for the situation with his wife, but yeah. pretty much to protect her and the child. I totally get why he lied. But yeah, they're just so like genuine and authentic. I would, I would like if they would take over our planet. And that kind of transfers over to the actual real life people in the band. Um, if you mm-hmm. look at their like social media stuff, yeah. They're, like, really sweet with their fans, and Aww. the fans all, like, say Hondo to each other. Because in the movie, like, <laughs> Hondo's not only a planet, it's kind of like, um... Like a greeting. Like it's a greeting, and, like, a thank you, and, like, all this other stuff. Is Aloha like that as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it's hello, goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> if you, like, look at their, like, Facebook page or their Twitter or something, like, watching them interact with fans, they have that same, like, sincere, like, leveling with you aesthetic in real life. Yeah. Like it is really shape. endearing. Nice. Um, but Aww. if you don't live in New York, there's like no chance to go see them play live. So this is like the cl- <laughs> this movie is like the closest like future folk experience. Are they still have. playing live? Yeah, they still play. They're still oh my band. god! Yeah. Can we do like a Swan Flicks road trip <laughs> to, bro- to Brooklyn? Hondo. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, so I thought that was interesting because um, I didn't know until after watching the movie that they were a real band, and it was like a Tenacious D type thing and mm-hmm. by the Concords type thing. So whenever they had all the people in the club, like, dressed up like them, mm-hmm. like, super fans, they were, like, losing their shit with their, like, bucket hats and everything like that. I thought it was so funny. And then, like, after I realized, oh, my God, this is a real band, how cool would that be to, like, be a super fan and dress up? It has to happen. I think people go there, like, dressed up like Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I have <laughs> to suspect maybe some of the crowd in the movies actually, like people who like regularly go to their sets you know it, it was filmed in new york mm-hmm. so yeah. they might have just been like if they're so like enduring to their fans they're probably like hey i want to play be in our movie like mm-hmm. wear your shit come over that's probably what happened so, so it was yeah it was, it was really pleasant it was ple- i'm glad you liked it i did like it uh and it is available on netflix and it's been there a while i don't I, think it's going away anytime yeah soon. i would i would recommend checking it out next time you're looking for like a weird but kind of low-key comedy I own this store called Championship Vinyl. It's located in a neighborhood that attracts the bare minimum of window shoppers. I get by because of the people who make a special effort to shop here. Mostly young men who spend all their time looking for deleted Smith singles, an original, not re-released underline, Frank Zappa albums. The fetish properties are not unlike porn. I'd feel guilty taking their money if I wasn't well, kind of one of them. And now it's time for our feature conversation. 
There's a news article a couple weeks ago where the inventor of the MP3 said it was like a dead format and like was just kind of like trashing the MP3 and saying like that found format specifically mm-hmm. was like obsolete now. Uh, and I was just kind of thinking about like we record on MP3 files. I think most podcasts do. So it's just kind of like a weird thing to say. And <laughs> as far as like obsolete like music formats go, there's like even more obsolete ones that people still use. Like I've noticed like bands, like punk bands will sell a lot of cassette tapes now because they're like really cheap to produce. Cassette tapes are making like a huge comeback yeah. too. They're really like durable too. Like I use them when I'm on the porch. You're not going to like scratch it up or anything. It's like True. something you can like drop while you're drinking. And it's a hard ass case. Yeah. Yeah. But even more ridiculously records from before cassette tapes obviously have been having like a financial boom in the last few oh, years. totally. You know, stuff like record store day is like kind of like a national thing. You can go to like Best Buy and buy like Nevermind replay printed for like 35 40 dollars stupid expensive yeah so the mp3 might be obsolete but people will always have nostalgia for old music formats especially stuff that you can like physically touch yeah i just remember like how exciting it was to get like a new cd and like look at the booklet at all the lyrics and the artwork same thing with like cassette tapes that used to have like the big fold out oh yeah Uh, So, I mean, something about that is just, like, super special that, like, nothing will ever, like, fuck that up. And I think that nostalgia for records has been around a while. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking today about three comedies about record stores. One is from the 80s, one's from the 90s, and one's from the 2000s. And I feel like all of them, even the one set in the 80s, has sort of a nostalgia for the format. Because even by the 80s, it was kind of, like, on its way out being replaced by, like, like cassette tapes, CDs and, and cassettes and yeah. um, oh, A-Tracks. A-tracks yeah. Well, I guess A-Tracks might have been 70s. That, was that a didn't go far. Yeah. It was kind of like, okay, yeah. you know, let's try this out. And ugh, it's like the laser disc of movies, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, like, nostalgia's nothing new, really. Mm-hmm. And I think the first movie on this list is the easiest one to get nostalgic about, and Mm -hmm. it is probably the most nostalgic, or one of the most nostalgic ones on here. We're going to start by talking about the John Hughes-written comedy Pretty in Pink, starring Molly Ringwald and Annie Potts. Annie Potts, and... Who plays Ducky? I can't even remember that guy's name. John something? (laughs) I can't think of it either. I just... And John Cryer. It's kind of fitting to forget who plays Ducky, though, because mm-hmm. I hate this character so much. I thought in my memory uh, that Ducky was he like... He was the shit, but then yeah. when you, as an adult, it's totally different. So the narrative around Pretty in Pink is that basically this like poor girl with like a drunk dad who's played by <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton. He's depressed, yeah, but super drunk. <laughs> uh, she falls in love with a rich kid, and her like nice guy Blame. best friend is going to try to win her back while she's like chasing this rich boy mm-hmm. and the narrative around the movie usually is like people saying like oh she should have gone with ducky because at the end of the right. movie she chooses the rich guy there's like so many etsy pens and shirts that are like should have picked ducky you know what i mean like that's mm-hmm. such like a big thing it's not true like <laughs> no. ducky is a huge asshole in this oh, movie oh god yeah <laughs> it's so disappointing because i mean he's just adorable his physical appearance is like you know adorable his voice the way he talks and stuff but like he is so offensive and like just disgusting it kind of makes sense that they would like be paired off in people's minds though because ducky and molly ringwald's character are basically 
these like poor kids who go to this punk club and they dress in thrift store clothes because that's right. what they can afford. So they're dressed like the 50s, which is like kind of where that nostalgia comes in. So it makes sense that you sort of mentally pair them off in that way. But that's what this movie is about. It's like a romantic comedy about like crossing class lines. And the guy uh, played by Andrew McCarthy that Molly Ringwald falls for. Blaine. Blaine. Yeah. Which is the most like appliance douchey like <laughs> 80s rich kid name possible. Uh, so she falls in love with Blaine. He's a dud too. I kind of like Blaine more than I thought I would. Because looking back in the film of my memory, I had mixed Blaine's personality with his evil friend played by James... James yeah, Spader. Staff. I kind of mix them together, but Blaine doesn't really do anything particularly bad in this movie. He's just <laughs> kind of there to be this like kind of hunky love interest. There's a couple scenes where he doesn't have the courage to like stand up to his friends, but for the most part, he's just kind of there and like looks pretty, and that's it. Every time I would get pissed off at Blaine in the movie, <laughs> I caught myself thinking like, "You're the fucking weirdo that's in love with a mannequin." <laughs> and I'm like, "Wait, like." <laughs> can't not think of him as the guy from mannequin so it's like you think you're hot shit like oh because you're rich but you're trying to like yeah and i'm like wait Brittany, like chill out all three of these actors have a very 80s like just like 80s vibe they like made the 80s like they were like in every john hughes film and like it's almost like molly ringwald is to john hughes as johnny depp is to tim burton exactly yeah that's like his go-to girl and for a good reason. She's fucking awesome. But all the drama between these three kids and, like, the drama of the men in her life is not the most exciting part of the movie to me. What's exciting is the record store owned by Annie Potts. It's mm-hmm. called Trax Records, T-R-A-X. And this movie's set in, like, the same sort of, like, vague Illinois suburb that all John Hughes movies are set in. So, yeah, she has, like, a dad that she has to take care of, and she's, like, in love with this rich boy, and then she has this, like, but I'm a nice guy, kind of, like, uh, MRA M- kind of kid who's, like, yeah. going after her. And and what's good in her life, though, is she has this one friend who's like an older woman who owns the record store. Mm-hmm. And Annie Potts kind of has this like drag queen aesthetic in this movie where like every outfit is like a production, you know? <laughs> right. And she like lives in this like badass Chinatown apartment. Yeah. <laughs> she's just, yeah, she's pretty awesome. And the like relationship between the two women in this movie is like really endearing. It's sweet. What was interesting to me about, uh, I think her name's Iona. There's a part in the movie where she's wearing this like short platinum blonde wig with like short bangs and i'm like that looks a lot like china blue from crimes of passion and then i'm like she's the china blue (laughs) this movie i honestly would not be surprised if like the costume designer from this movie maybe took a little bit from china blue oh totally Uh, like china blue is like her wardrobe was fucking badass and so was iona's so yeah there's like a weird connection there especially since annie potts was in crimes of passion so (laughs) it's pretty cool she has like a shared appreciation for like old things and like she also goes to the punk club with the kids and stuff and i just think her character's like very sweet and like a very like necessary influence for this movie like if it was just about the three kids like kind of rough triangle it would not be nearly as endearing as like having this like nerdy secretary from ghostbusters come in and like just (laughs) she's almost like be more about like true friendship and not like teenage romance you know she's like the female influence in andy's life since her mother left so Mm -hmm. she's almost like I mean, she, poor girl is at home with, like, her drunk dad, and everyone at school is, like, an ass to her. So this is, like, her person. Uh, yeah, and that's why Harry Dean Stanton is drunk and sad, is because his, his wife abandoned him and his daughter. It's not like she died or anything, she just, like, left. She's not coming back, Dad! She's yeah. never coming back! <laughs> oh, God. This was written, like, after Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles, and before Ferris Bueller. 
16 Candles was like 84, Breakfast Club 85, and then this was like 86. He was just fucking spitting them out. Back I think I like this more than the other two. Like, I think Pretty in Pink holds up really well. 100%. Yeah. Like, I was a huge, huge fan of like these John Hughes, like, Brat Pack movies growing up, mm-hmm. and this was always like my favorite one. I've watched this one like so many times. It was so entertaining. Like, every part of it's yeah. good. And I think the music is a large part of that. Like, <sighs> yes, indeed. It opens with her like getting dressed to the psychedelic furs, right? Yep. And then the, the trips to the punk club are like kind of iconic and just that idea of like being a teenager as the only employee in a record store and like wearing all these like thrift store clothes that's right. like something that's very um you know cool for like outsider kids yeah when no, you're like in high school totally yeah. and the soundtrack is such a huge part of this movie where it's a lot of like this angsty post-punk kind of music where mm-hmm. you don't really see that in a lot of these like teen 80s movies it's usually like either like ridiculous pop or some like weird rock stuff from the 80s but this takes like more like new wave and yeah. it's really it's awesome like they have like fucking three new otter songs in here which are so good shell shock <laughs> one of my favorites totally in here but yeah what's interesting is that the soundtrack is just instrumental Except for the Pretty and Pink song from the Psychedelic Furs. When it comes to, like, you know, all the New Water songs that are in here, where it's, like, Thieves Like Us, Shellshock, and... God, I can never pronounce it, but, like, Elgia, Elgia, Elgia. I, I mean, a majority of them are instrumental, but there are parts of, like, vocals in it, and the vocal parts never, like, come out. In and there's that other song that's Wouldn't It Be Nice, and it's just the instrumental, where it's, like, wouldn't it be nice? Dun, 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 oh, yeah. Dun, dun. That's such a good moment. But it's like you're waiting for the vocals to come out, and they never come out. So, yeah, and they have the OMD song at the end, the iconic, like, you know, If You Leave. But I just thought that was pretty cool. And then the Smith song, that in the same way, too. I did notice that in one of the record store scenes, all the music looks pretty anonymous in the background. Yeah. But they very prominently, like, pulled a Smith's record out of the uh, stacks. So right. they were sticking out. So her and Blaine are talking across the aisle <laughs> on either side of this, like, Smith's record that's, like, right. prominently in the frame. And you're right, like, that 80s depressive, like, post-punk sound is very, like, instrumental to the, like, teen, like... It was just, like, this hormonal, like, teenage play... Like, whenever you're that age, just, like, you know, you feel like the world's shitting on you. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't escape. Yeah, if you don't get the person that you want so bad, it's, like, the biggest deal in the world. Right. Uh, and then you grow up and you're like, what the fuck? Yearning. Teenage yearning is yes. a <laughs> The teen yearn. Uh, um, <laughs> I want to tell someone that, like, you're going through the yearning. The year- <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> the yearning. <laughs> Another horror movie. Oh, uh, yeah. No, but it's like, I always kind of, like, related Ducky with the Smiths growing up because they do play that Smith song while he's in his room on his, like, mattress on the floor. <laughs> you know, just the saddest scene ever. But, yeah, speaking of Ducky... So, like we were kind of talking about earlier, you know, Ducky's supposed to, is, like, portrayed as, like, the cool friend hero that she should have gone with, like, it almost reminds me of, like, what they did in Some Kind of Wonderful, another, like, hot 80s teen movie where two poor kids are, like, best friends, kind of in love with each other, and then he's, like, into this rich girl, Amanda Jones, and he ends up getting with the, you know, the poor friend in the end. It was like, I don't know. I don't know which one came out first. Okay. But it, they just seem really similar, but like gender roles kind of flipped. It's really ingrained in everyone. Everyone, like, you know, growing up, everybody watches Pretty and Fucking Pink. So <laughs> it's, you know, ducky, ducky, ducky. And then like watching this, 
as like a grown ass woman, you see him in a totally different light where he's this obnoxious pain in the ass that just like won't leave her the fuck alone. He's a monster. <laughs> he's a super monster. He even goes up to like a group of girls and is like, who wants to make a deal where I could get y'all pregnant by the summer? And this is supposed to be funny. Yeah. Like, fuck the hell off. Just like constantly like preying on Andy. I mean, it was getting creepy. He, like, stalks her, and he's, like, constantly like, making, like, rude comments to her, and, like... He, uh, just... even, like, kind of forces himself on Iona at one point. Yeah! To make her feel bad, which is, like... Right, like, like you've been replaced. Very low. Super uh, low. Maybe the hero of this movie is Andrew Dice Clay, who plays, like, the bouncer who will not duck into the club. Oh, yeah. And he trying to, like... probably saved her from, like, <laughs> getting assaulted. And, like, talking Jesus. to him, like, what are you even doing? Like, why are you chasing this girl? She's not interested in you. Like, kind of back off. I, I kept, like, freaking out because I'm like, this guy is so mentally unstable. Like, he's talking to Andy's dad about, like, marrying her. Mm-hmm. It used to be, like, you know, it came off as funny and comical. Like, oh, here's this, like, little funky dude. And, you know, her dad's kind of even giggling. But it's like, what kind of psycho is going to do something like this? What? Don't let him in your house, <laughs> please. That is, like, the driving force of the movie. And I think most of the plot is centered around this, like, one disastrous date night where oh, yeah. she takes uh, Andrew McCarthy to the punk club and Ducky makes an ass of himself there. And Andrew McCarthy takes her to this, like, jockey party where everyone is, like... <laughs> Steph and Benny. Yeah, like, what are you doing here? They, like, casually drop some homophobic slurs while she's there. Uh-huh. And then, at the end of the date, even though it's gone so bad, uh-huh. uh, she initiates, like, their first kiss, which is kind of sweet. And she feels good about the day on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, like, kind of the center is that driving force there. Uh, so it's not like this movie spends a lot of time in the record store. But I think that after the end of the movie, when she chooses Blaine over Ducky... Which I get. That's, yeah, totally understandable. <laughs> and totally. Yeah. But there's, like, sort of an impermanence to this. It's not like they're going to be together forever or whatever. No. Uh, maybe for the rest of senior year and the summer after, but that's about it. Right. It's more her relationship with Iona that I think is, like, important to She'll her life. She'll always have the record store. Yeah, I think the record store is going to be, <laughs> like, a constant. Yeah. Yeah. There's three record store moments that I think are important in here. Yes. Uh, even though they're not that many. Annie Potts catches a shoplifter, like a little shithead kid, and shoots staples at his face <laughs> with a little staple gun. You missed my eye by half an inch. Or no, by an inch. She's like, <laughs> half an inch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. The rich boy, when he first flirts with her, comes in to buy records he obviously doesn't want. Oh, it was so, like, I was getting chills, but in the bad way, where not only is she getting stalked by Ducky... She's getting fucking stalked by him, too. But it's like he comes in the record store and then he, like, kind of stares at her with his, like, pursed lips. And then she kind of looks at him and then he keeps walking. Doesn't even give himself five seconds to walk without staring at her again. And it's just kind of like, like, what is happening here? I think that's just flirting. I think it's like, it? Okay, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was just really weird. I think they're just bad at it. It's Maybe. supposed to be like, kind of awkward. He doesn't care about music the way that she does. Right. So him just, like, grabbing a random record just to buy it like, so he can talk to her. Right, and uh, he talks to her, and then, like, he does the weird computer trick. Oh, yeah, they have, like, early, <laughs> like... Library? Yeah, like, early oh. AIM flirting, early... Right, yeah, yeah, AIM, ICQ, yeah, yeah. all that cool shit. The third <laughs> record store moment, and probably the only, like, redeeming moment for Ducky in this whole film, is when Ducky lip-syncs for his life to mm-hmm. Otis Redding. <laughs> uh, I really like that scene. It's just him... Lip syncing to Otis Redding. And like, he's so good he's at good it. He's good at it. Yeah, no, totally. I love, love, love that scene. It's a practiced routine. I I, I think that's like his one like three minute stretch. 
And at the end, when he like doesn't put up a fight when she sees Blaine, he's like, "Oh, just and go he's to him." Yeah. Like sweet at the end for yeah. sure. It's almost like he he had a little a little change. He grows a little bit. He does grow. But I couldn't help but like ma- imagine like a smaller version of him because he's like, "Oh, my mom loves Otis." Like him doing that in the kitchen while his mom's like making spaghetti or something. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's done it before, obviously. Well, Pretty in Pink is like kind of nostalgic for like this '50s aesthetic a little bit, and nostalgic for like a better time when, like, her mom would have been home and stuff with her dad. And, like, Annie, Annie Potts' character is a little nostalgic for, like, her young life. There's a scene where she dresses up in her oh. 60s prom dress and dances around the apartment sort of remembering the good times. Empire Records from 1995 is more nostalgic about, like, record stores as, like, a viable industry. This is a day in the life of a independent record store that's on the verge of like a corporate takeover and right. it like follows all these like 20 something losers who've worked in this record oh, store forever so many people yeah <laughs> that's a lot of people i think this was like a sort of cynical cash in on gen x culture mm-hmm. where they were like this is what all like modern like shrug it off losers are like let's make a movie <laughs> and sell it to them and make a bunch of money and it failed miserably like the movie bombed but for some reason, it's a cult class once it hit VHS, sure. kids got into it. Mm-hmm. I have a theory that when you watch this movie young enough, if you're younger than the employees in the store when you watch it, you kind of look up to them and think they're cool. They're so fucking cool. Yeah. But watching it now, they're like such losers and terrible actors. Like the acting in Empire Records is so bad, but in kind of an endearing way. There's a couple scenes in this movie where they try to go over the top with like actual emotion. Uh, and it's very awkward, like, but like in a funny <laughs> Corey way. Corey and Gina like, yeah. just yelling at each other. Yeah, there's a specific <laughs> scene where um, the two, like, hot girls that work there, Renee Zellweger and Liv Tyler, Liv Tyler they have an argument about diet pills that is, like, straight out of, like, a very special episode of A Saved by the Bell or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like you said, the cast is just, like, really big in this movie. There's, like, a mod. There's, like, a stoner kid. There's an art school kid. There's the two hot chicks. Right. And then there's the goth girl. And wrangling them all together is this sort of, like, has-been rocker guy named Joe, who's, like, kind of like their dad. Innocent Blood. Oh, that's the guy from Innocent Blood? And he was Joe. Oh, Innocent weird. Innocent Blood, too. So we've, ha- we've seen this man have sex <laughs> in a vampire movie before. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. But, I don't know, it didn't really change the way I felt about him in Empire Records. He doesn't have sex in this movie, but he does punch one of his, like, kids. Like, yeah. the, the kid he actually adopts... As, like, his own legally, he, like, beats the shit out of him, and it's supposed to be this kind of, like, comedic moment. It's kind of weird. really sad. But for the most part, he, like, gives these kids, like, a place to go, and, like, they could steal thousands of dollars from him and threaten his livelihood, and he, like, doesn't fire them. He just gets mad. sit on the couch. Yeah. Time out. You know, (laughs) Papa Joe says. (laughs) And the movie takes place over the course of one day. There's two major (laughs) events. Uh, The corporate takeover that's encroaching on their territory. So they have this, like, corporate goon who keeps coming in and, like, is talking about selling the store right. to this kind of virgin mega Mus- store. Music town. Music town. And the other one is, is it's Rex Manning Day. And this sort of, like, Robert Palmer, uh, Neil <laughs> Diamond kind of, like... Oh, Neil has Diamond. Been, Neil Diamond, like, has been rocker. Right. I kept thinking, I'm like, would he be, like, a Michael Bolton? Yeah. But I'm like, no, Neil Di- no, with the silk and the hair. Mm-hmm. You're so right. I was thinking Robert Palmer, too, just because addicted to love the music video. Uh, for <laughs> with the ladies like the say no more mona more where yeah. it's like a big wine glass <laughs> in the um, in the camera and it pulls away to this like sexy lady so all these like gen x losers have to pretend to like this man's music as he comes in to, to sign cds and promote his new record mm-hmm. um and nobody likes him he's a huge ass 
And those are the set for Corey. Oh, uh, yeah. And Until. Liv Tyler's character wants to lose her virginity to him. Jesus. Her acting is so shit in this movie. <laughs> and she's so obnoxious. Like, I do not like Corey at all. Corey has a conflict where this, like, art school boy is kind of, like, acting like her ducky. Like, he wants to, like, uh, a- be like with AJ. her. Yeah, he's like kind of yeah. like, I'm a nice guy, you should be with me, but he d- never says anything about it. But he's getting ready to that he's day, Rex to. Manning day. Uh, you have that conflict, you have the Rex Manning conflict, mm-hmm. and I guess the goth girl is going through some stuff, uh, where she like is surviving a suicide attempt, sort of. It's more it's, like a cry for help. It's really weird. She just like immediately shaves her head. Mm-hmm. Like, the minute she walks in. Yeah, you don't meet her before she starts shaving her head. It just gets so intense with... Uh, oh, Deborah, her character's yeah. name. It's like, it's just a hundred. It's and, like, I'm gonna shave my head, here's my slit wrist. <laughs> oh my god. Like, and she's what? the, uh, goth girl from The Craft. The one that gets... Yeah! Yeah, yeah. I like that the <laughs> characters in the movie are actually, like, really mean to her about, like, surviving the suicide attempt and, like, shaving her head. Renee is like, shock me, shock me, shock me, Sinead, or rebellion, or whatever. <laughs> it's... It's weird, like, how much they're making fun of her. But these are all, like, kind of minor conflicts in some ways. Like, the movie is mostly just these kids dicking around a record store. Right, and it's just, like, they're getting paid. Like, I want that job. Like, I want (laughs) Joe to be my boss. I want to be able to just, like, fart around and do whatever I want. They're just, like, coming and going as they please. They don't really have any customer service skills. Oh, they're terrible at it. What did you think of the movie on the whole, though? Rewatching it. Do you have, like, a nostalgic thing for this? Did you watch this as a kid? Yes. Okay, me too. So, yeah, definitely, like, a nostalgic feeling for it. It's so fun, though. Like, mm-hmm. every time, and I've watched this movie so much where it's, there's not, like, one part of the movie where I'm like, oh, let me just, like, go, like, make a, you know, a pizza in the microwave or something like that and come back. <laughs> like, no, like, I just kind of, like, I watch the whole thing because it's just, like, a lot of fun because it's so stupid. Especially um, Mark. Like, I used to think that Mark was, like, the most annoying part of Empire Records, but, like, watching it in more recent years. Is this the stoner character? Who's just, like, always in front of the camera and screams, like, Rex Manning Day! Yeah. Shoplifter! Just kind of... And he has, like, the the gore scene where he's, like, having his gore fantasy. I think that's the kid from Can't Hardly Wait, too, right? Can't Hardly Wait, and he was also um, Rusty in Vegas Vacation. Ah. He's in a movie this year called um, The Devil's Candy. It's like Whoa. a horror film where he plays a metalhead. Oh, it's his dream's like... coming true. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, and in this film... Good for him. Uh, he obviously smokes a lot of weed and right. eats a pot brownie and is a big metalhead. And at one point in the movie, he eats a brownie and watches a gore video. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, like, all marijuana does to people uh, makes them hallucinate. Right. So he hallucinates that he's in the noir video. Because it was probably laced with codeine. And this weird, like, Dale Johnston song starts to play on the soundtrack instead of guar. And he gets eaten on the stage. <laughs> Which, if you've ever been to a guar show, they do that a lot. Like, someone right. will get eaten and just, like, never return to the, to the vault. <laughs> right. He I was think... really fun, though. I he is it. fun. I, out of all of them, like, I think I would be his friend. Like, if I had to pick one, to be my friend. I think the thing about the movie is kind of like the Guar scene, where, like, the major conflicts don't matter that much. Like, no. it's a s- movie about moments. Like, there's, like, a lot of, like, small, yeah. like, individual moments and jokes that, like, work well. Not all of them do, but some of them are, like, really funny and memorable. And it kind of fits into that, like, slacker vibe that they're not really, like, trying to solve any problems until they have to. They're just kind of, like, hanging out. Very um, true. There's also a thing that I thought was very, like, core to its, like, record store culture thing which is like the m&m trick where they pull out a colored m&m and whoever had the right color gets to pick music for the day and they have like all these rules about who gets to veto each other's music 
at what time over the sound system. And that just seemed kind of like a lived in like detail of someone like actually worked at a record store to like have this like do something like that. Yeah. Who gets to pick what music when? Like a little tradition. No, I, and I did like a lot of the music in this movie. Like I think it did the time period really well, like the gin blossoms and mm-hmm. that I think that band was called like Sponge. Like mm-hmm. say your prayer for me. This was the first time I've ever heard Guar. Uh, it was the first time I ever heard Daniel Johnston. Cause uh-huh. This was before I saw Kids, and this is the first time I ever heard Throwing Muses. And like Throwing Muses and Daniel Johnston are like two of my favorite bands ever. And you know Guar's like really fun live, and I yeah. probably would not have been as excited to go see them the first time if I hadn't grown up with this. So film. like Empire Records kind of shaped you. Yeah, I mean <laughs> musically. Well, I saw it like as like a young teen who's like looking up to these like, like loser how kids. Fucking cool. And yeah. Then, like you grow up and you're like. Oh my god, get your shit together. Yeah. <laughs> you <There>, little assholes. <laughs> there's like a guy in this movie that actually in real life was Liv Tyler's stepdad. The guy who looks like way older than them and has like the poofy hair who uh, plays guitar at the end of the film. Oh, the sugar high guy? Yeah. Uh-huh. So in real life, that's like Liv Tyler's stepfather. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, or was for a time. Thank god they didn't have like a weird fucking love scene. Oh god, gross. But it's funny that like... <sighs> Jesus. It's funny that he looks like he's probably been working there for 15 years. And the other kids, like, a lot of them aren't going to go to college or whatever. Like, their big dream is to, like, start a band. So, yeah, it's it's a movie where, like, these kids, like, have no real ambition except for keeping the record store going. So they have somewhere to go every day. It's sort of, like, really interesting how, um, especially like, movies from this time period where when someone goes to college, it's like, oh, my God, they got accepted. or like, But now it's just sort of like... That's the norm, where mm-hmm. that wasn't really the norm back then. That was kind of interesting. And it kind of seems like the college thing is like a, uh, it's an ambition they don't want to have. Like, they kind of right. want to be slackers forever. And like the kid's kind of afraid to apply to art school because he doesn't really want to go that much. Like, he doesn't want to leave Empire. <laughs> yeah, he wants to, like, <laughs> yeah. By the way. Can you imagine that there's a record store that was just, like, always open till midnight? That's why I thought that this store might be in L.A. or something, but apparently it's it was filmed in Delaware. I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, apparently there's this giant record store in the 90s in Delaware <gasps> where they filmed this. But, Amazing. Um, yeah, you would think that this would be, like, an L.A. scene or something. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the movie, they throw this kind of, like, benefit concert to save the store, and it looks like weird L.A. people come out. Like, there's, like, hippies and bikers and just... A strange array of, like... Like, <laughs> that weird guy, um... Oh, he's, like, this older guy. I don't know if he was a biker or a cop, but he buys the Alice in Chains poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, like, what is he doing? But like, a grunge dude or something. Yeah. yeah. But, like, an older grungy guy. It's super fun. And definitely this movie does that thing where, like, your music taste is your personality. So, like, people identify, right. like, I am the metalhead, or I am the rocker chick, or I am whatever. Can't Which, go beyond. When you're a kid, look like I said, watching it young enough, you're like, oh, that's really cool. I want to be like this one or that one. But when you're a, an adult, it's like, what taste you have in music really doesn't matter. It's super, f- or like Lucas, when he's talking to the shoplifting kid, and he's like, would you, metal, rap, metal, <laughs> rap. And then he's like, don't you listen to jazz? And Lucas has, like, the black turtleneck, and it looks like he goes to, like, poetry readings and snaps his fingers. Yeah. It's super funny. And he says all these, like, sort of platitudes about nothing. He's like, what's with today, today? Right. Like, Lucas, <laughs> shut up. You just stole a bunch of money and fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on the leopard skin yeah. couch. I think the Rex Manning stuff in this movie is very funny. It, like, gives them all, like, a common enemy. So they're all these, like, poor wasteoids. So for them to have this, like, common, uh, like, corporate rock kind of gross man that they can all like hate on together right. it's kind of funny 
I mean, they play his single Say No More, Moan More probably like 12 times in the film, which would be a good drinking game. <laughs> I like whenever they play it and they're all just like making fun of it and like dry humping in the store and everybody starts dancing. Yeah. Like, I love love that scene. <laughs> I think the music video they filmed for Say No More was really funny. They were only supposed <laughs> to film like 40 seconds of it. Oh. And they ended up spending a whole day shooting a whole video. <laughs> and the movie makes a point of showing as much of it as as possible. And it looks really funny. I liked it. Yeah, like we were saying earlier, it kind of like makes fun of that Robert Palmer, like the girls dancing to Addicted to Love right. kind of vibe. But it's on a beach. <laughs> like robotic women. And um, when he first comes in and they're setting up his table for the signing, there's this really like over-the-top production of like the camera moving around the store of them like setting up stuff and like gliding down the stairs and stuff like that. Like it's Rex Manning Day. Uh, and they have like that homemade like banner like Rex Manning Day and yeah. it looks like someone just got like a marker. It's kind of infectious. <laughs> like when the movie's having fun in those moments, it's really infectious. And when it goes for the melodramatic mm-hmm. blow-ups about like the diet pills or like sleeping with oh my God. Who, who slept with who. Fucking they like fucking were the biggest assholes to Gina. Like, mm. slut-shaming her every chance they got. Just pretty freaking horrible. Yeah. And Gina's really, really mean to the girl who almost killed herself, to Deborah. Right. Who got her own funeral. But at the end, they I guess they find some kind of common ground. Yeah. Like, like oh, we're Empire Records kids. Like, right. Like, we all just stick together. It's kind of like <laughs> the 90s Breakfast Club, would you say? Oh, uh, yeah, I can see that. I can, I get that. I guess that movie's also about slackers, but it's just like a different generation different of slackers. Yeah. Right. Would you even be able to recommend this to somebody who didn't grow up with it? Like, you'd be like, oh, you should check out Empire Records. I, I don't think that I would. If it was someone who was, like, really into, like, 90s alternative and that whole, like, time period, I'd be like, you should totally watch this. It's kind of funky. Or just, like, if you want a movie where you can just, like, fart around and do stuff and just kind of have that there, mm-hmm. I would totally recommend it. But not, like, it's going to change your life. Yeah. It'll be good for, like, a few laughs and, like, just, like, a flashback to be, like, shit, that's weird. You know what I mean? But, um... No, I, I don't mean, think I would. I would recommend this movie to, like, 13-year-olds. <laughs> right. To make them go through what you did. Like, you're gonna watch this, worship these people, yeah. and when you're older, go back on it and be like, nope, that was horrible. <laughs> I want you to go through the same struggle. Ask them to Spotify the soundtrack so they can check right. it out. Yeah. But this one's definitely more, like, record store-based than any of the other movies, because uh-huh. the entirety of it it's in, in the, the record, record store. store. They'd okay. maybe leave, like, once or twice. To get pizza. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the last movie on the list is nostalgic for that slacker 90s spirit. It's called High Fidelity. It was made in 2000, uh, starring John Cusack. And working in the store is Jack Black. And I did not look up the third guy's name. He kind of looks like Moby. (laughs) Right. So it's a three-employee situation. A nervous Moby. (laughs) Yeah. John Cusack owns this record store in Chicago. And the movie, like points out that it's in Chicago so many times. And it's another thing where music equals identity and, like, people are so proud of their music tastes and, like, most of the movie is them listing their top five records here or there. But they're, like, older than the kids in Empire Records. Like, they're approaching their 40s. But still, like, douchey. They're horrible. They're the worst. I've never been to a record store until I moved here. And I've seen High Fidelity, so I was so scared to go in a record store and, like, ask where to find something. And I'm like, I'm going to get judged. They're going to say that I have stupid music taste. And it's like, no, they're just horrible in High Fidelity. I think some record stores, bike shops, and comic book stores, not all of them, but some of them do have that, like, protective nerd culture thing. Where, like, they're just, like, really obnoxious men who, like, gatekeep their things if you don't 
already know everything about what you're asking about. You're like seen as a lesser person. And this movie, <laughs> I think, tries to make that seem cool and not pathetic, which is weird. Watching this Ugh. as an adult, I did not enjoy it as much as I did when I was a teenager. Like, oh no, yeah. they're really horrible people. <laughs> That's the theme with all these movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not as pleasant when you're older and yeah. you watch them. The whole focus of the film like john cusack like we said earlier like makes these top five records lists off the spot like top five albums about death or top five beatles records or right. this or that the movie is based around him making his top five breakups like his top five most significant romantic breakups and he's like ranking these women that have been in his life the same way he would rank like his five favorite like so disgusting beatles records <laughs> what a piece of shit Ugh, before we get into the insanity of this movie, I just want to like point out that the movie is based on the book High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, mm -hmm. who is like an amazing British author that if you, I don't know, like I got into him because I started like reading the Helen Fielding, like Bridget Jones diary books mm -hmm. after I got into the movies. And then it was like, if you like her, you'll like Nick Hornby. So his books are awesome. And he actually wrote about a boy which is another where you can kind of, I don't know, like I found like a lot of stuff in About a Boy, like the way that the film goes is a lot similar to the way High Fidelity goes. He has a lot of influence on a lot of the movies his books are based off of. I hated this book when I read it. Really? <laughs> yeah. I loved it. There's a scene where the narrator gets like really studi making fun of um, Kate Bush because it's a British book. Right. And I guess Kate Bush has like, she's more, like of, she's more like a radio star in Britain. She's, she's like here. the Madonna of Britain in a, in a way, right. I would say. Like, I'm a huge Kate Bush fan. Right. Uh, like, so, like, fuck that, you guys. She's yeah, awesome. Yeah, fuck this guy. <laughs> right. Uh, and that snooty, like, underground, like, holier than thou, like, I like obscure records and Kate oh, Bush is Jesus. bad because everyone knows who she was. Yeah. I thought that was really gross reading the book. I think that's why I thought it was funny, though. Like, because it's like when you're reading something from like a first person point of view and you hate that person it's just kind of like god this guy sucks <laughs> and it's like oh, god you suck can't wait for someone to shit on you again <laughs> this guy sucks more than just for his music taste snobbery he is just for like a huge asshole as a boyfriend one of the first things he says in the movie is that females are cruel and then it shows right. him outside his most recent breakup's house yelling into her window you fucking bitch let's work it out what I, I guess right. it's somewhat poking fun at him, but the whole movie is centered on his persona and his point of view to the point where I guess you're supposed to identify with him. It's like what's disappointing, I would say, is you want him to be punished in the end. Like you want him to just like end up alone and just a fucking failing record store to hell with you for being such an asshole to all these girls. And he gets a happy ending, yeah. and it pisses me off so much. I think the only thing I can say, maybe, in his defense, is that maybe he's just bitter in the movie because he just got broken up with. Right. Maybe he's not always like this. And sometimes he kind of recognizes, like, God, I am a jerk. Where he gets it. He's not, like, above everybody. He's just like, I am an asshole, but... I'm always going to be an asshole. So I don't but he's, he's doing the same, like, sad sack, like, teen yearning stuff he didn't say anything, John Cusack. Yeah. Where he's, like, pleading for this girl to come back to him. And it's just not endearing for a 40-year-old man to, like, grovel in the rain <laughs> this way. Get out of the rain, John yeah. Cusack. <laughs> Find dry land. And he's not the only, but I'm a nice guy in these movies. Like, Ducky was one we talked about. Uh, the art school kid, Mark, from right. Empire Records. It's the same, like, oh, I deserve this woman because I want her, uh, and I get everything I want. Interesting fact about John Cusack, where, I guess, like, after watching, like, Gross Point Blank, where it's, like, heavy into the clash, 
one of his like his favorite band is like the clash so in a lot of his movies like you'll see like a lot of clash references and um when he was making one of his top five lists like the clash made it oh really that's cool (laughs) how cool like i think the best scenes in the movie are just him or in the record store with his two employees jack black is funny as shit jack black's really endearing in this movie Oh my god. I like, um, one of my favorite parts is whenever that dad comes in, he's like, I'm looking for, um, I just called to say I love you. And Jack Black loses his shit. And it's just like, that's the most like embarrassing part of Stevie Wonder's career. No way in hell your daughter asked for that garbage. <laughs> and this man just like leaves like super like pissed off. I guess the difference is you're supposed to know that Jack Black and the other guy are losers. The fact that they're such snobs and like kind of pathetic. Just kind of like we showed up at this record store and just kind of eventually got employed here yeah. kind of guys yeah and it's kind of like the kids from empire records like they right. should have moved on a long time ago they're just kind of like hanging around this is like post empire records yeah. where joe kind of like does he does open his own store right mm-hmm. yeah championship vinyl it's oh. like it would be like joe's store and yeah. then like those would be like the two that just never left right yeah exactly <laughs> this is future empire records head <laughs> Ed- cannon they even say in this movie kind of like an empire records like where your identity is like your music taste there's a scene where John Cusack says, like, Ugh. what you're into matters more than who you are as a person, which is fucking insane for someone in their 30s to say. So annoying, because it's like, there are so many people like that that I just, like, think are the most obnoxious human beings in this world, where it's like, sometimes something just sounds good to somebody and doesn't sound good to the other person. Who <laughs> gives a shit? It does not matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> oh my god. And they argue a lot in this movie about who gets to play what music on the radio. Because Jack Black's all about, like, hard-edge rock and roll. With his, like, tape. Yeah. Yeah, like a Monday morning music. I mean, a mix. A mix. With It starts with Katrina and the Waves' I Feel right. Good, which is, like, the most annoying fucking song to hear first thing on a Monday morning. I think, I think this is before all those, like, cell phone commercials came out with oh, that totally, song. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, God, that song again. Also, being from New Orleans, the name Katrina and the Waves is, like, very, like, <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Right. <laughs> shit <laughs> um yeah i love how he fucking like hates like bell and sebastian mm-hmm. just constantly shitting on <laughs> there are some like endearing like record store culture kind of things here they're like i like the scene where john cusack's reorganizing his personal record collection as like right. therapy where it's like i do that yeah <laughs> like i do that like probably once a month it feels good to like pull everything <laughs> off the shelf and like reorganize it and like it's like almost like oh i forgot i had this and mm-hmm. then kind of highlighting it and he, like, goes through, like, the perfect mixtape formula right. and stuff. Right. That stuff's kind of cute. Like, it's not yeah always terrible, but whenever he's talking about his relationships with women, it's really just hard to get on the same page as him. What's interesting, and, like, I noticed, like, watching this again recently, was none of the women ever look fucking happy. Mm-hmm. None of them. Like, in the flashbacks or whenever he, like, meets up with them and is like, why did I fuck up? Why don't you like me anymore? Yeah. Um, they just never look happy when they're with him. Catherine Zeta-Jones looks happy when she, like, laughs in his face. Right. She's like, what the fuck are you doing All here? All for a reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Love her. And he, he has sex with Lisa Bonet's character, who plays, like, this, like, musician. And the, the only reason they get together is they're both sad about their exes. Right. The uh, Peter Frampton cover song. And that, like, sad sack, like, narcissism is pretty... Well, and he's the same way with, um, who's it, Sarah, who's Lily, um, what's her face... Joe from Mystic Pizza. Oh, okay. I can't think of her name. name. It's Lily something, but he does the same thing with her, where it's like, they're heartbroken, they get together. It seems like he kind of enjoys being that sad sack he got broken up with. Like, he, like, kind of revels in it. And, like, he's just bitching about how women have turned him into the monster he is. And, like you said, he gets, like... Jesus. 
he gets kind of a uh, upswing in his um, character arc where he has like kind of a happy ending because he like finds love again and he's not bitter anymore. Uh, and he starts to put his life together. He starts DJing and like opens his own record label. And... Top five records. Yeah. It's <laughs> something like that. I just really got the worst like taste in my mouth with him whenever he meets up. I believe it's with Penny. The girl who, like, didn't want to sleep with him when she was 16. So he yeah. was all like, oh, fuck her. She didn't want to sleep with me. There's something wrong with me. And she's like, no, I just wasn't ready. And thanks to you, like, my first time sleeping with somebody was pretty much a rape. That's when he admits, like, <laughs> I am an asshole. Right. Yeah. But then he's happy about it. He's like, it wasn't me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck you. Okay. So this is, like, the worst movie on this list, right? <laughs> it was just really sad. It was yeah. really sad because, like... You dislike the main character so much, and he's always in your face. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it's almost like he's talking to you, because the way this movie's filmed, where it's, it's a lot of the narrator into the camera kind of thing, where it's like, I don't want to have this conversation with you anymore, Rob. Please leave yeah, the just room. just get over it. But he doesn't leave the room, because he keeps coming back on the screen. <laughs> and he opens the movie talking about like how pop music is usually about heartbreak and like obsessing over romance. Right. So that's how they structure the movie is like, <laughs> we're going to talk about heartbreak and obsess over it uh, the same way like listening to pop music does, but it's not fun. Like pop music's fun. This movie's it's not fun. It's a good fun. time. Yeah. No, it's really sad. <laughs> Some things like record store specific things I noticed in Pretty in Pink, Iona and Molly Ringwald's character do not argue about music the same way that the other people do. No. I don't know if it's just because they're on the same page, but like... Or they're just not assholes. Well, that's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, they're just kind of like, eh, cool. That's yeah. Nice. In all three movies, there's a lot of, like, fourth wall breaking, where, like, people talk directly to the camera. Ducky does it a little bit in Pretty Pink. Right. Uh, Lucas does it a lot in Empire uh, Records. Right. And then pretty much all the of... whole movie. <laughs> high Fidelity is... <laughs> John Cusack talking directly in your face. Right. Like you said, like, there's no escape from you his, like, leave. obnoxious personality. <laughs> right. And also, all three movies have these, like, sort of white boy shoplifters. Annie Potts shoots staples at the first one. Um, the second one, the kid gets caught, and they kind of make fun of the CDs he was stealing. And in the third one, the shoplifters are these, like, punks who have their own band. And then the record store employees get kind of like jealous because their band is like way better than any music they've made themselves right so that was they kind like of an interesting them. dynamic yeah <laughs> right and i guess that's like most of what really ties them together besides that like overarching like nostalgia i was talking about earlier i, I will say after shitting on high fidelity for a minute um <laughs> i think it has like the best record store moment out of all the movies is when john cusack looks around and notices that championship vinyl is like full like there's like people shopping in there and he's like look i'm gonna sell three beta band cds in the next three minutes and he just <laughs> plays like the height of dry the rain which is like their best song and people are like kind of nodding They're their heads it. They're like, hey who sings this and like he's like sells three beta band cds in three minutes like he said he would <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are really funny parts of this movie. I mean, he's horrible, but I think the movie doesn't really put a good light on him. Like, no. it doesn't, it's not, he's, you're not supposed to really like him that much. You, you don't think so? I think it kind of aligns you with his personality. But maybe it's about the bitterness you get when you're in the middle of a breakup. Maybe so. So maybe if, if I was, like, in a really shitty mood. I could revel in this guy's awful opinions. Because a lot of the comments that, like, I read about this movie, a lot of it was, like, males that were, like, fucking totally get this, I totally get this. So I'm just like, okay, like, maybe that, yeah, like, that might make sense, but... That's pretty gross, though. <laughs> right. Uh, but, um, like, the funniest parts in the movie for me, other than, like, 
Jack Black doing his weird Jack Black shit. Ian, who's like Tim Robbins. Oh, Tim Robbins is so funny in this. Super funny, where he's like this like new age like hippie guy. And I think he goes into the record store. And Rob tells him something like, get your patchouli ass out of here with all like the rings on his fingers and stuff. I thought he was really funny I in like there. Rob has that um, office space moment where he pictures Ian having sex with his girlfriend. Uh, it's so Tim Robbins good. is so funny in that scene. With his like gray hair. It's very like, an, you know, not to bring it up again, but to bring it up again. Very Tim and Eric-y, mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. Like, it reminded me of that sex scene from the Billion Dollar Movie a little bit. He's like a larger-than-life <laughs> character. Like, he doesn't like... He's a cartoon more right. so than anybody else in this film. Right. So, yeah. I really enjoyed Ian, shall I say. Yeah. Is there anything else you really want to bring up about the three movies as a whole? Like, what they do together? I like how you put it, where it's like, they each kind of take over, like, a certain, like, generation. So, all of them are totally nostalgic in their own way. So, they're all enjoyable in that manner. But... Yeah, I'm, you know, kind of, like, thinking, I can't help but, like, compare them, and it's, like, which one I think is, like, probably the coolest, and I want to say, like, Pretty in Pink, I think. Pretty in Pink's the best. The best, for sure, right? Yeah, I think Pretty in Pink's, like, the best. I think Empire Records is really good if you're the right age. (laughs) True. Um, It was, like, the shit when you were, like, younger. Yeah. Yeah. I think even now, if you're, like, you know, late 20s, early 30s. It's fun. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. And I think that High Fidelity does not hold up. Like, it's so gross to me. You'd have to be a really bitter person to identify with what happens in this film. Or like a diehard John Cusack fan. Yeah. Just like, I will watch this forever because I love him. (laughs) But no, it was really like, I watched it and I'm like, you know, I don't think I'll watch this again for a while. It made me so depressed. Yeah. Where I'm like, all these like women that he's like shit on, then he's blaming them for the way he feels when he was like the dick to them. Even though he kind of makes that realization eventually, mm-hmm. kind of. It's just kind of like, God, get out of my face. <laughs> and he keeps coming into your face. Whereas in Pretty in Pink, like the two main girls in the movie are like super endearing. You get a get out of my face thing with Ducky, but... Also, to back to Pretty in Pink mm-hmm. with the, the women in the film. So like Molly Ringwald's character, I think, is pretty like strong. Like, especially when she has the encounters with Steph. Where it's like, this is like this rich guy that's supposed to like get everything he wants. And she's just like, yeah, you're a piece of shit. Bye. I think that's so, she's like, so not afraid to be herself. Mm -hmm. Like she makes her own clothes, like does her own thing. And she really isn't super ashamed of it, except for like certain parts where she gets nervous with blame. But her friend Jenna, is it Jenna? The the girl that's like smoking and in gym with her. Oh, yeah. I fucking love her. Yeah. And I was um, looking up, like, has she played in anything else? Because I thought she was just so badass in that movie. You know, like, I hope they fucking shrivel up and fall off. Yeah. You know, telling her that about her, <laughs> her, her titties. <laughs> and, oh, she's just so great. Like, she's like that awesome, like, I will take no shit from anyone friend that everybody should have in their life. Mm-hmm. She died before this movie was released. Oh, no. Right. Because I'm like... How I just feel like maybe if that wouldn't have happened, like just having a small supporting role, like, maybe she, she would had, have a bigger role. Yeah. She would have been bigger because I thought she was great. So I was like, cool. I want to see other shit she's been in. And yeah. I was like, oh motherfucker, that's really sad. It's super sad. But yeah, also another like little appearance from someone else that's interesting. Miss Gina Gershon is one of the bitches in the gym. Oh really? I didn't even notice. Gina Gershon of Showgirls fame. Yeah, yeah. Cool. She's one of uh, Benny's asshole friends. So. I want to mention that. I think maybe expectation might play into, like, liking that movie as much as I did, too. Because I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Pretty in Pink? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. You get kind of, like, the John Hughes, like, Brat Pack stuff mixed up in your head. Right. Um, I didn't expect to love it as much as I did in this rewatch. 
I think I like it so much is because like my fantasy life, minus all the weird boy stuff, would be to be Andy. Like her badass room, mm-hmm. her awesome like thrift store finds, her cool ass shit car, you know, her music taste, mm-hmm. going to the punk club with like her cool record store friend, working at a record store for a living. Yeah. Like I love her life. Yeah, I think she's got a great she's life. She's so cool. Uh, it is the movie that is the least record store focused out of the three, but right. but it is like But it is at the heart. Yeah, I, I agree. It's at the heart of the yeah. movie. Well, uh, we are focusing on the vanilla ice movie Cool as Ice all Ugh. of this June. Uh, which is the most gorgeous piece of trash you'll ever watch in your life. Uh, <laughs> it's a remake of the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild One. So Vanilla Ice plays this like rapping biker that goes through this small town and strikes up a f- summertime romance with this girl. Um, and it is filmed so gorgeously that it's like almost like this weird art piece that just happens to have this rapping, dancing uh, novelty <laughs> artist in it. It's a fun house of a movie. Yeah. If you're just looking for, like, dumb fun to watch this summer, it's just, like, a really brightly colored 90s nostalgia throwback that I think kind of fits into the vibe of the kind of comedies we were talking about today. Totally, where it's, like, in no way in hell is it going to win some kind of award, but it's fun to watch. Yeah. (laughs) And in two weeks from now, we're going to be recording an episode with you, me, and James, all three hosts. Uh, So that'll be a fun, like... The Ridges. Originals. The originals. <laughs> I was trying to think of a cool way to say it. Yeah. It's a uh, reunion. We haven't done that um, in over a year, so that'll Since be fun. Since Killer Dolls, I yeah. think. And um, we'll see you then, a couple weeks from now. Bye. Bye. Bye.